We are going to be in Mark chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles. But I've got a confession to make. And um, in 10 years of public ministry, I have never preached on the Palm Sunday narratives, which is quite a shocker. Never, ever. So I'm really excited. You might be daunted. But it's always sort of been palmed off to the the kids workers or to the youth workers. And it's always been in an all age sort of service. But it's something and it's so rich that we can learn from. And there's, once we begin to plow into its depths, we'll see so much coming. I think there are three things that I think we're going to be pulling out of this text. One is that Jesus comes and fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecy. Secondly, that Jesus, in fact, is the king that they've been expecting. And thirdly, is that there's the humility of the Savior that comes through in this passage. But how do we see it? How do we see Palm Sunday? On a surface level, we see lots of people waving branches and singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But there's so much richness that sort of lies just beneath the surface in that. There's the celebration for us before Easter. We've sort of been through Lent and the sort of liturgical calendar of the church. And we might have given up coffee and wine or chocolate or stuff like that. We might have even given up going to see people. But it's not only that. There's some real richness that lies under that. Or maybe for us, sometimes it's just that we see Palm Sunday as the start of Holy Week, that it doesn't really enter into our minds, that we kind of just skirt over it. And we think, oh, well, you know, it's Palm Sunday. Great. Tick. Move into Holy Week because we really want to focus on Good Friday and and Easter Sunday. But there's something more we miss so much about the Palm Sunday narrative. So if you've got your Bibles, um, we'll read it. And it's Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 1 to 11. It says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, there's so much we can pick out of this story. 
it's not just the kid's story that we that we kind of listen to and then uh, hear and, and kind of do nothing about it. There's something that we have to do. Do we enter into it as one of the worshippers standing along the road shouting Hosanna in the highest? Come in, come into your city. Are we like those people who are still waiting at the home where the cult was found? Kind of just asking, why do you want to do this? Or maybe we're those hanging out at the temple courts, kind of going, right, who's this, who's this person who's come in that there's this furore going on uh, about? But there's so much under the text that we have to learn. Well, firstly, that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from Jericho. Jericho is one of the lowest places on earth. It's the lowest city on earth. And it would have been a 300 meter climb over 12 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem with a short stop in Bethany and Bethphage as they come along. From there, it would have been this really steep, hot, sticky climate. They would have seen nothing, no vegetation or anything coming up from, Jer from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Barren rock, a steep climb. What else? As they kind of head over the hill and see Bethany and Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives that, that come along, it's full of green. There are things growing in the fields. There are palm branches there. It would have been like this excitement that sort of welled up within Jesus and the disciples, that there was life to come. For us, we kind of might forget that because we live in 2020 in the UK, and we kind of forget some of the, the sort of topographical and geographical things going on in Jerusalem. We won't be familiar with the dustiness and the dryness coming from Jericho to Jerusalem. But here, once they arrive, it's lush and beautiful. They go into a village and they find a cult there. And Mark's gospel, it doesn't tell us what sort of cult it is. It could be the sort of amazing stallion of a, of a cult that's never been written. But that's not true, because in Matthew's gospel, he tells us that it's a donkey cult. You know, it's not the, the amazing hero's welcome into Jerusalem that he would have been riding on. There wouldn't be a war horse like maybe the people of Jerusalem were expecting of the Messiah to come. It's interesting that Jesus tells them before they arrive that they would find the cult there. I wonder if you've ever thought, well, was that prearranged? Did Jesus kind of have the, the uber of the first century world waiting? And he tells them, if you're questioned about this, say the Lord needs it. I wonder what would have been going through their minds as they, the disciples walked up and said, oh, by the way, the, the Lord needs the cult. I wonder if someone came up to your brand new car, your brand new Ferrari, and said, oh, hang on, I'm just going to take it for a spin drive. The Lord needs it. We'll bring it back when we're done. Would have been a tricky thing, wouldn't it? Were those people expecting him? Or maybe it was just sort of Ava's donkey hire in the first century. But Mark and Matthew and the other gospel commentators leave us in no doubt 
of who the cult is for. It's for the Lord. Not just any Lord, but the Messiah. The one who was spoken about in the Old Testament. As they were walking, the disciples threw their cloaks onto the colt, and other people threw them on the road with some palm branches. Now, of course, it's a dusty, hot climate, and that would never have happened. People really valued their coats, and they wouldn't simply just throw them on the ground in the dust and gravel. They wouldn't have even done this for a long-lost relative for the head of their household. No, it was only reserved for the king. The king that was to come. They had only ever seen this in the whole of the history of Israel. They've only seen this happen twice before. Firstly, where Jehu becomes king in 2 Kings chapter 9. It says this. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Then they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So that's the first time in Israel's history that people took their coats off and laid them on the ground. The second is uh, Judas of Judas Maccabeus, where there's sort of a conquering thing going on and they do that before, but that's not recorded in the, in the scriptures, but that's recorded elsewhere. So only twice has this ever happened before. And here Jesus, the carpenter's son is being called King. They've taken their coats off and laid them down a true celebration of who Jesus was meant to be reserved only for the king. What were they all doing there? You know, it's not like every day you're expecting people to be lining the roads waiting for the king to come. But this was the pre-Passover celebration, the celebration of God's rescue plan for the whole world, where God, we're reminded of God's rescue of Israel from Egypt and the Passover story that was to come. Of course, it was also there of the, the celebration of salvation. And of course, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, means save us and save us now. They were almost prophetic in what they were saying by them saying, save us, save us, King, right now. Come and do it. Perhaps they were wanting to be saved from the Romans or from what was going on in Jerusalem at that time, that God would restore to them the whole nation that was supposed to be there. And then he also just seemingly just goes into the temple, the place where God was supposed to dwell. And he leaves it. God, for that moment, rocked up in the place he was supposed to be. Jesus, the person who is God, goes and then leaves it. Perhaps he was thinking, well, this place isn't going to be standing for much longer. Perhaps he knew that the new temple was about to be formed in the believer's heart. And I wonder, have you ever thought about it? Did Jesus return the cult? Did the donkey go back? We just don't know. 
So those are some background thoughts on our passage that we need to just think about for a moment. What were some of those things that maybe I said that you thought, ah, I haven't known that before? Well, what about our three things, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus is in fact the king and the humility of the savior? Well, firstly, that fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Where can we see this? Where is it in the book that we see Jesus coming? And it's in Zechariah chapter nine. And it says this, nine verse nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. And then it goes on to say this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And they would have been sort of thinking this, those who have sort of had the eyes to see, that this is the coming of the king, righteous and victorious. Now, we know that Zechariah would have written this quite a few years before, a few hundred years before that. And Jesus is sort of there walking in into the, into the narrative of the Old Testament. We can say that Jesus is doing what he said he was going to do in the Old Testament. That he doesn't just sort of saunter in, but that this word has been fulfilled. But let's think for a moment, okay, Jesus, well, if you are who you say you are, surely you would have planned all of this ahead. Surely you would have planned your journey up to Jerusalem. You would have prearranged a donkey to be there. But cults of donkeys don't just go with anyone they're talking about. They've never been ridden. They've never been sort of ridden in. So they, you know, they haven't been broken in for someone to be riding on them. And Jesus does that. He gets onto the donkey and rides into Jerusalem. Also, that the rejoicing greatly, rejoicing, O daughter of Zion. He couldn't have prearranged loads and loads of crowds to be there all shouting Hosanna in the highest. It was their choice. And that choice lies with us too. But one thing I think, like we heard in that poem earlier, is that they might've been shouting along with it because of all the crowds. But did they know what they were actually saying? Hosanna in the highest. He who comes in the name of the Lord. The sign of the King was about to come not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. Those who were with Jesus would have known him to be the Messiah. Maybe those others along the road were distracted, but he is there, the conquering king. What is he going to conquer? Well, death itself in just a few days' time. Jesus the king coming in, riding on a donkey, as prophesied in the Old Testament is now riding into Jerusalem, the, the place where God's city is, to return Israel to God, and that he might overthrow the enemies of Israel. Well, maybe it was the Roman Empire, but I think it goes far beyond just the Roman Empire. He defeated 
the greatest enemy of Israel, death itself. Jesus does that. He doesn't just let it happen, but he rises again after his crucifixion. That salvation, prophetically being spoken by those people on the road, was going to be there and fairly immediately. That those who believe in his name might be children of God. They might find salvation for their sin. They might find a way out of the greatest enemy of the people, death itself. And God's king, the city of David, the king has returned. The king of kings and the Lord of lords has returned to the city. And thirdly, we see the humility of the saviour. Instead of the conquering king riding on a charger into Jerusalem, he arrives on a colt, a humble little thing. He doesn't see everyone in Jerusalem. They don't all come out and flood the road leading up to Jerusalem. He just says, many people. Some of them might have missed the coming of the king because they were busy doing other things. Maybe some of them were in their own lockdown. He doesn't sort of applause them. He doesn't build the crowd up, but he just carries on into Jerusalem. Again, this is the sort of narrative of Jesus that he seems downwardly mobile. We're going to see that he takes a low place coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. He takes the low place of suffering the most embarrassing way of death and torture. He takes the lowest place so that we on Easter Sunday might take the highest place. Well, that's great about all these things that we can get out of the text, but what about for us? That Jesus is still king. If we invite him in, if we invite him into the Jerusalem of our hearts, he's still in control. He can bring peace just like he brings peace to that cult. We need some peace in our nation, don't we? We need some peace in our hearts. And we can really hold on to that, that Jesus still is the king. The king has come, but that he will come again. He will bring salvation again. He will come and make a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no sickness or disease or coronavirus. He destroys the judgment by taking it upon himself. In a few days' time, we'll be celebrating that with Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that he takes the punishment that we deserve on himself. And he is all that he said he was going to be. Those revealed in the Old Testament, those revealed in the Gospels, and those revealed in the New Testament, he is who he says he is, the Lord of life. And so we've got a choice, just like those worshippers in the first century. We have a choice. We can worship him. We can worship him because of his salvation. We can worship him because he's the king. And we can worship him because he's paid the price. But we've got the choice. We can do that or we can just go about our business and forget it. Like those palm branches being waved around, some of us might have some palm branches from previous years. But it's not just about little palm sword that we might stab each other with. But it's about the cross that is looming large. 
that he pays the price. So what is your answer going to be? Is it going to be, yes, Lord, come in. Come in and do what you want this Easter in our lives. Or do we have the choice to go about our own business? How about we pray? Father, thank you that Jesus came, that he took the place of low nature so that we might have the highest, that we might know you as God. Father, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on that colt of that donkey, Jesus, would you come and enter into our lives afresh? Holy Spirit, would you be doing what you want to do in us? Father, would you come and share your new life with us? Lord, might we know this Easter season that you have passed over the things that separate us from you? Would you help us to know that, Jesus, you have taken those things to the cross and we can have free access? Lord, would you come and would you make yourself known to us? Lord, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.